And I want to just address the last couple of weeks here <laughs> briefly um, and just say how honored and privileged Jen and I feel uh, to have this role, to have this season here at Faith Bible Church. And I want to thank all of you for your support, for your encouragement, um, so many things that we've been so appreciative for for this body over the last few years and for the last few Sundays as well to us. I also just want to say that uh, <laughs> one of the things we committed ourselves to over the course of the last year and a half as we were going through all of this, and myself included, was dedicating ourselves to prayer. Uh, we sensed our need in this transition season, and we knew that we needed to depend on God. That doesn't change as we head forward. Uh, one of the things we're going to be talking about is prayer in our time this morning in Joshua, and so I'd encourage you to please continue to pray for the leaders, continue to pray for myself as I prepare the messages as we go forward. Uh, one of my, I guess you'd call him an idol, but a, a pastor who I appreciate a great deal, uh, summarizes the commitment of a pastor of a church in four ways. It says, the task of a pastor is to preach, to pray, to love, and to stay. <laughs> preach, pray, love, and stay to... Give God's word to God's people and expect that God's word will do God's work in God's people. To commit to praying for them consistently, to, be, to praying for them regularly, uh, to love them regardless of what the circumstances are and regardless of how seasons change, and to stay for as long as God wills and as the body will have them. And I just want to say to you that that is my commitment to you here this morning. That is our desire for this church, and we will do our best to faithfully pursue that ministry for as long as the Lord tarries or as long as you will have me here. Know enough about me. Let's pray, and then we'll get into Joshua chapter 3. Uh, Father, we are thankful for the fact that you are faithful. You are a faithful God. You are sovereign, and you are good. Lord, we sing your praises this morning. We are blown away by your majesty, and we're blown away by your grace toward us, especially the gift of your word that you've chosen to disclose yourself to us and give us the opportunity to read your word, to have your spirit to interpret it correctly. And so, Lord, we ask for your help in that this morning, that you would guide and direct my words, that you would open our ears and open our eyes to see incredible things in your word in our time together this morning, and that we would leave this time today changed, more conformed to the image of Christ, desiring more to be obedient in our Monday through Friday lives as well. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. We know not what to do, but our eyes are upon thee. These words are taken from 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 12, and they're a part of Jehoshaphat's prayer to God for deliverance as the enemies of Judah were enclosing themselves around him and they were seeking the Lord's protection and provision for them when their only hope for victory was God. They're also the scriptural themes selected by Franz Hildebrandt, seeking to sum up the life of one Diedrich Bonhoeffer, following his death in April of 1945. I recently finished uh, Eric Metaxas's book, Bonhoeffer, and was so encouraged by the story and the life of Diedrich Bonhoeffer. I'd encourage you to read that if you've never taken the time. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who lived much of his adult life as a pastor in Nazi Germany under the rule of Adolf Hitler, was faced again and again with insurmountable odds and seemingly no-win scenarios in his ministry, before ultimately being martyred at the age of just 39, two weeks before the Allies would reach his prison camp. And Hildebrandt, at his funeral, made the point that the impact of a Christian life 
And the impact of Diedrich Bonhoeffer's life in particular is measured not so much in the confident certainty they have in every event and every decision of life, but in the degree to which they focus on God's glory and follow his leadership in every decision of life. He summed up Diedrich Bonhoeffer's life in, we know not what to do, but our eyes are upon thee. Can you resonate at all with that feeling? Have you ever found yourself in a situation in life where the path forward was unclear? The way you were supposed to take was not sure. The odds were unwinnable. And your only option was to turn to God for help. Maybe it's the loss of a job or financial insecurity as you're not sure what the future holds and you're not sure which path to take and you're not sure where to go and you find yourself going, God, what do I do? Maybe it's a fractured relationship or an estranged friendship. As you feel like you've done everything you can to live at peace with all men, but the relationship is still not mended. Maybe it's a personal battle with sin or a long-term mental illness that you find yourself turning again and again to God saying, I don't know what to do. What do I do, Lord? The fact of the matter is, in all of these scenarios, the problem is simply too big for us. We need God to show up, do we not? The reason I bring that up is I think that's very likely the way the Israelites were feeling as they sat on the east side of the Jordan River waiting to go into the promised land here in Joshua chapter 3. If you haven't been with us over the last few weeks or have forgotten where we are in the book of Joshua, let me do a little bit of a summary of where we are in the story. The book of Joshua can be summarized in this way. It's the story of how God fulfills his plans for his people by his power in his timing. Specifically, it's the story of how God brings the people of Israel into the promised land that he had promised to their forefathers generations before that he was going to give them. And God ushers them into this promised land and he fulfills his promise in his timing. We're still in this first section that I mentioned in chapters 1 through 5, dealing primarily with the crossing over the Jordan River. You remember we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, where they're on the east side waiting to move in to start conquering the land. Now, the first week in chapter 1, we heard how God commanded them to enter the land. God said, go in and conquer the land. And he gave them the prescription for their victory. He says, victory will come by embracing God's plans by remembering God's presence, and by delighting in God's word. Remember, that was the recipe for success that God gave his people. He said, if you embrace my plans and promises, if you remember that I am with you, and if you focus on obedience to my word, then you will be successful. Then last week, in chapter 2, we saw Rahab and, if you will, the Gentile Passover. We found this really interesting parenthetical, this step away. You'll notice if you read through Joshua that chapter 1, as you finish it up, you could jump right to chapter 3 and the story just continues. Chapter 2 feels almost like an unnecessary pause in the story, but it's not unnecessary at all. It's this incredible reminder that through this unexpected conversion and an extraordinary faith of the prostitute Rahab, a Gentile is added to the people of God. What an incredible story to start out the book of Joshua with. I want to thank Corey for preaching on that last week for me. 
though I want to give you a little bit of a caveat, he finished early, okay? I'm going to cash his check this week, <laughs> okay? we got a lot of ground to cover in chapters 3 and 4 here. Now, in chapters 3 and 4, we pick up from chapter 1. Israel's faith must get up and walk, both figuratively and literally, as they approach this Jordan River. Joshua 3 and 4 serve as an illustration of what happens when God's people follow the plans he's laid out for them. When God's people do exactly what he told them to do in Joshua 1. And here in 3 and 4, in these two chapters, we see God taking three actions on the part of his people and the people positively responding in three ways. We'll walk through those as we walk through the text here this morning. But we begin, first, God prepares his people. We see this in verses 1 through 13 of chapter 3. God gives them commands and he sets up this crossing of the Jordan. Look at verse 1 and 2. Then Joshua rose early in the morning and they set out from Shittim. And they came to the Jordan he and all the people of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp. Now, hold on just a second right there. I want to note a couple of things. First of all, here in verse 1, we see, and the people of Israel, and they lodged there before they passed over. That term, passed over, that's that key word I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, that crossing over concept. You'll find that pass, passing, or passed over shows up 22 times in chapters 3 and 4. It's a critical theme as they enter the land, as they move into this land. I would encourage you to underline them, highlight whatever you do in your Bible. Every time you find pass, passed over, passing, any of those terms, that's that term we talked about a couple of weeks ago. The second thing I want to note is in verse 2, at the end of three days. Now stop there for a moment. God has given them a command. They know what they're called to do. Why do they wait three days to move into the land? Now, we could make the argument that this massive nation of two million people just needed some time to collect themselves, to prepare to move out, to pitch their tents, or not to pitch their tents. What's the opposite of pitch their tents? Put up their tents, whatever the case might be, okay? To collect all themselves and get ready to go. I I don't find that compelling. And I, I say that because this is a people that had been nomadic for 40 years. They had grown very accustomed to when the pillar of cloud or the pillar of fire moved on, we better get going and move on too. They had packed up and set up and packed up and set up. So why do they wait three days? Why does God tell them to wait three days before entering the promised land? I'm going to make this argument. Patience is a part of their preparation. I believe that patience is a part of how God sets out to prepare them to enter the promised land. God's people must be a patient people. God's people throughout the Bible have always been a waiting people. We'll see this throughout the book, that whenever the nation of Israel gets really excited, they think they know what they're supposed to do, and they get going, and they get out in front of God, they fail miserably. Whenever we get really excited, and we think we know where we're going, and we get out in front of God, what happens to us? We fail. Part of their preparation was learning to be a patient people. We'll come back to that here in just a moment. Because from there, the officers that Joshua addressed back in chapter 1, if you recall, speak to the people on God's behalf. Look at verses 2 through 4. At the end of the three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, 
As soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, your God, being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it, in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. It's fascinating that essentially the command of the officers to the people is follow the Ark of the Covenant. Now, in case you're unfamiliar, the Ark is a key theme in these two chapters as well. The Ark of the Covenant will come up 17 times. It's as if it's its own character here. And it, it exemplifies the presence of God going before his people. The Ark of the Covenant was that big golden box that God had had put together in the Pentateuch that they put the law in, and they put manna in, and they put a number of things, and it represented the presence of God before God's people. In the same way that the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire in the wilderness had represented where God was moving and where he should be followed, the Ark of the Covenant is to go out before the people in the book of Joshua, and they're to follow after it. And you'll notice what gets stressed here is that they are to obey immediately. As soon as the Ark goes, you go. You're supposed to follow right behind it. This is God's timing after all. But he also says you're supposed to obey at a distance. You're supposed to follow it at a distance. And there's a couple of practical reasons. The first is you don't know where you're going. Imagine that. They didn't know where they were going. They needed God to lead them. In addition to that, there's the fact that the Ark of the Covenant was holy. And later in the Old Testament, you find that just reaching out and touching it can kill you because God's presence is so holy. So they're called to obey immediately as the ark sets out to follow that ark, and they're called to obey, but keep it at a distance. That 2,000 cubits is probably about half a mile. So they can see it, so they know where God is leading, and they're ready to follow after it. Then Joshua addresses the people. Look at this in verse 5 and 6. He speaks to both the people and the priests. Then Joshua said to the people, "'Consecrate yourselves.'" For tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua said to the priest, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. First, Joshua addresses the people. And what he says here is fascinating, should be intriguing to us. He says, Consecrate yourselves. Now, we don't use a term like consecrate very often in our common language, in our modern day language. This term, which is related to the Old Testament term holy, is the idea of being holy, being set apart, being dedicated to the purposes and the plans of God. It had both a generic or a general and a specific application to the Israelites. Generally, they were a unique people. They were a people set apart, holy for God's purposes. But specifically, they were called to consecrate themselves at certain times. They were called to wash their clothes, and they were called to refrain from certain activities. We'll talk about this a little bit more in a few weeks when we talk about holy war and that, what that means in the book of Joshua but it also had an external and an internal aspect. They were to wash their clothes, they were to prepare themselves externally, but they were also supposed to prepare their hearts, to dedicate their hearts to God. I think this is something worth noting for us as well. Consecration is a part of their preparation. Think about that for a moment. Setting themselves aside for the purposes and plans of God to be holy because God is holy was a part of God preparing them to do what he called them to do. God's people must be a holy people. You are to be holy, for I am holy, God says. We'll talk about that here in just a moment. 
Because I, I think it's fascinating what follows this. We find ourselves asking the question, why were they to consecrate themselves? Look back at verse 5. He says, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Literally, the term for wonders here is God will do things to marvel at. God will do something to cause you to marvel. Now pause for a moment. When was the last time that you paused long enough to marvel at something God had done in your life? When was the last time you paused long enough to wonder at what God is doing in your life, what God is doing in this church, what God might do in this church and in your life? Do you push pause on the busyness of life at times to say, God, what you did was amazing? Because it is. And maybe some of you are sitting here going, you know, if God would just part the Jordan for me, then I would marvel. Right? <laughs> but don't you recall Jesus' words when the four friends let their lame man down through the roof and he looked at the man and he said, your sins are forgiven? And they said, well, what? God, only God can forgive sins. And he says, I know that. But so that you would know that the Son of Man has power to forgive sins, get up, take up your mat and walk. And in that moment, Jesus said that what takes more power is for me to forgive this man's sins than for me to tell him your legs are fixed. Think about that a moment. When you go, if God, you would just part the Jordan, then I would marvel. God is at work doing marvelous things in our midst. Do we pause to marvel? Every time a sinner is transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son, that is a miraculous thing that God is doing. Every time one of us as believers submits a new part of our lives and our hearts to the will of God, that is a miraculous thing that God is doing. Every time the Holy Spirit causes love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control to be produced in your life, that is a miraculous work of God that should be marveled at. Do we pause long enough to marvel at what God is doing? I think it's worth noting here that as God prepares this people to go into the promised land to do the task that he's calling them to do, he makes expectation a part of their preparation. He says, you should expect that I will do marvelous things. God's people must be an expectant people. Not because we can demand anything from God, but because God is faithful to his promises. We should expect that he will do what he said he's going to do. We're going to see that played out here in just a moment in Joshua 3 and 4. From there, the priests do exactly what they're called to do. They take up the ark and they pass on before the people. Note the immediate obedience here. You'll notice this theme throughout the book of Joshua. Take up the ark of the covenant, verse 6, and pass on before the people. So they took up the ark of the covenant and went on before the people. When God's people do exactly what God calls them to do, things work. It's amazing how that works. Next, God explains what he is about to do and his reason for it. We see this in verses 7 through 13, this next section, as God gives the people certain assurances. And I've said that this pattern will come, become familiar. God delivers his message to Joshua. Joshua delivers the message to the people. Okay, so we see that here in verse 7 and 8. God delivers a message to Joshua. Look at verse 7. The Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of Israel. 
that they may know, as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And as for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, when you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. This is God's message to Joshua. And it's fascinating here that he says he's going to start raising Joshua up for this task. And here in verse 7, he says, this is the moment. This Jordan crossing provides assurance to God's people that God's presence is with Joshua. He says, I want the people to know that I am behind you, Joshua. I want the people to know that as long as you're following me, I am with you, which is exactly what we talked about in chapter 1, right? This idea, all that you commanded, we will do. Wherever you go, we will go. Just be strong and courageous. Let God be with you, Joshua. And God says, I'm with Joshua. I want you to know that as you go through, this is evidence to the people that I am with you. And as I said, Joshua faithfully shares this message with the people. Look at verse 9. It says, And Joshua said to the people of Israel, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. I know that's a mouthful, but it's going to happen. Behold, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. Now therefore, take twelve men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe a man. And when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the Ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. God predicts precisely what he's going to do. Why? Because he wants the people to know that when they see it happen, God is the one that caused it to happen. God wants to give them assurance that he is with them. Did you see that? Verse 10. Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you. Then down in verse 13. When the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth shall rest in the waters of the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing. He says, I am with you. I am among you. And you need to know that because that's the only way you have hope of conquering the promised land. God's people needed to be informed by Joshua about the significance of what God was about to do so that when it happened, they would trust in God. So I add to the fact that I believe God is preparing this people in a number of ways through consecration and through patience and through expectation, but here God prepares them through instruction. Instruction is a part of their preparation as well. God's people must be an instructed people. Part of preparation is having the word of God delivered to God's people. It prepares them so that when God does what he's promised to do, they say, ah, that was God. Right? But what we see all the way through this section is God is the chief player. God is preparing his people. Which means our only task, just like the people of Israel's, is to respond appropriately. If God prepares his people, excuse me, if God prepares his people, then we must wait faithfully. Our task, like the Israelites, is to faithfully wait for God to move. Think about this just a bit. In your own life, if you're anything like me, you have a tendency to run straight into action, right? 
The moment you know what you feel you should do, you run right at it. Do you pause long enough to wait on God's timing? Do you pause long enough to pray for God's leading? Do you pause long enough to get the instruction you need to know what to do? Maybe that's just me. And I think it's worth looking at these four ways that God prepares Israel here for us as well. First, he prepares them through consecration. He calls them to be holy, to set themselves apart for God's purposes. For some of us sitting here this morning, we need to embrace the holiness that is found only in Christ. You can spend your entire life running around trying to do marvelous things for God. If you don't have a personal relationship with him, it's not going anywhere. Christ said that in the final times there will be people come to him and say, I did these amazing things in your name. I cast out demons in your name. And I, I fed people in your name. And I did marvelous works in your name. And what will Christ say to them? Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. The first step in consecrating yourself, preparing yourself for what God has for your life is embracing a relationship with Christ. You can't achieve anything of value eternally for God's kingdom without first being in relationship with Jesus Christ. That's where it begins. But for those of us that are believers, that's not where it ends. Because there's also an active sense in consecrating yourself. Are you seeking, are you pursuing holiness in life? Is holiness a high priority for your life on the scale of, of priorities? This idea of setting yourself apart, saying, I am set aside solely for devotion and obedience to Christ. I know more often than not, our tendency is to think more in terms of, I have this amount of time, I have this amount of money in my life, God, let me give you this piece, and you should probably tell me thank you very much for that. As opposed to the idea that you have been bought with a price. You are now a slave to righteousness, in Paul's words in Romans. You are a kingdom of priests. You are a holy nation to use the, well, let's just turn there. First Peter chapter 2. Puts this really well. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 12. Borrowing from the language of the Exodus, Peter writes this, speaking to the church. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We are to be a consecrated people. We are to be a holy people. We are to set our lives aside for God's purposes and plans, whatever they might be. Preparing also means being instructed. Romans 15 verse 4 speaks of learning from the instruction of Scripture and teaching each other. That means public instruction from the, the word, from the pulpit. That means personal instruction as you engage with the word with one another. That means private instruction as you seek 
God's will for your life from his word week in and week out? As you prepare for what God has in store for you, are you focusing on his instruction in your life? How about expectation? Can your preparation for God's will in your life be defined by expectation? 2 Corinthians 5 verse 7 says, we walk by faith and not by sight. Are you expecting that God will do something in you and through you? Or are you just kind of waiting around? And then finally, I know one of the hardest ones for me is patience. It is so hard to be patient when you're waiting, is it not? I'd encourage you to consider the three days that God said, sit down and wait before I move you across the Jordan. Don't waste your waiting. Don't waste the season in life where God says, just be still and wait. God uses those in mighty ways to prepare us for what he has in store for us. Throughout all of this, we must learn to embrace God's method for preparation by faithfully waiting on him. I think that's what we see here in Joshua chapter 3. But preparation can't last forever. We all know that. At some point, the rubber must meet the road. And that moment has arrived for the Israelites. In verse 14, they set out, and we see that God also leads his people. God leads and Israel follows. Look at verse 14. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the Ark were dipped in the brink of the water. Now, the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest. Stick a pin in that. 16, the waters come down from, or coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam. The city is beside Zarathon, and those flowing down toward the Sea of Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off, and the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, and all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. Note God's plan here how God leads his people. What goes first? The Ark of the Covenant. God's presence moves out from before the people, and then the people respond in obedience. Now, I want to note three things real briefly about their obedience here. I want to note that Israel's obedience was immediate, it was dependent, and it was committed. Look at this. There was no delay, there was no disputing, there was no fighting with God. I don't think this is the right time, God. When the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests bearing, excuse me, bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, right? The Ark moves out. People say, that's God's presence. We're following that. They follow immediately. They're doing exactly what they said they would do in Joshua chapter 1. Do you remember that? They said to Joshua, wherever you lead, we will go. Whatever you command us to do, we will do. We're with you because you're with God. And they do it. They set out right behind the Ark of the Covenant. Well, a mile or a half a mile back from the Ark of the Covenant, but you understand my point. They immediately respond once they know what they're supposed to do. Two, they are dependent. Think about this for a moment. Think about the vulnerability of the people of Israel as they enter the Jordan River here. As they walk down into this riverbed, this 
mass of people, two million strong, with women and children and their possessions and all the loot they carried out from Egypt that God caused them to give them, with Jericho up on the other side. If Jericho had decided to come down and attack them at that moment, they are done for, right? Or you can't help but think that in their minds they're remembering, I remember what happened to the greatest army in the world in the middle of a river about 40 years ago. The Egyptians were wiped off the face of the planet when God didn't hold back that water any longer. They were entirely dependent upon God's provision in that moment as they stepped foot after foot through the river. And the imagery here intentionally connects it to the Red Sea parting in Exodus chapter 14. It's almost as if the people are walking through the valley of the shadow of death into life, depending upon God's provision every step of the way. They were a dependent people. Their obedience was dependent. Lastly, their obedience was committed. There was no turning back. Think about this. When you get to the other side of the Jordan River, if they had looked up and said, that's Jericho, I'm not interested in that, the gate's closed. There's no retreating. There's no going back because now they're fenced in with the Jordan River behind them. They're all in. If God doesn't show up, they're sunk. Their obedience is immediate, it's dependent, and it's committed. We'll come back to that here in just a moment. But first I want to note something because I think these verses also give us a hint to God's purposes and God's strategy here. I love this. Just, just, just bear with me here for a moment. God's strategy for taking them through the Jordan River is to take them through the Jordan River at the worst possible moment and to assault Canaan at its strongest defenses. Right? You, you see that here. Look at verses 15 through 17. Right? We read, And as soon as those bearing the ark had come as far as the Jordan, the feet of the priests bearing the ark were dipped in the brink of the water. Now, why does he include this note? The Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest. Why? This was the time of harvest. Some people estimate that the Jordan River may have been as wide as a mile wide at this point, which would be a logistical nightmare for modern armies, but it would have been an impossibility for this generation. And God says, this is the moment. This is when I want you to cross. And you can almost imagine, now bear with me, I know, I, I know I'm out on a limb here a bit, but if I were Joshua, and I'm not saying Joshua said this, okay? But if I were Joshua, I'd just be like, okay, God, we're ready to move into the promised land. What do you want us to do? Go across the Jordan River. Well, how about we go a little ways upstream? It's a little narrower there, right? No, I want you to go across right here. Okay, well, why don't we wait a few months until the flooded season has passed and then we can get across the river? No, I want you to go across right now. Okay, okay, Lord. Um, well, after we get across, do you want us to go upstream a little ways and attack some smaller villages so we can kind of build some momentum with our army and some experience? I mean, these people have never fought before. They don't really know what they're doing. No, I want you to take out Jericho. Wait, you mean, you mean that giant city with the enormous walls? Yeah, Jericho. I mean, think about it. They attack at the least strategic time of the year in the least strategic location in Canaan. What is God doing? God isn't chiefly concerned about human strategy here. His aim is obedience, dependence, and maximizing his glory. He wants to make it abundantly clear to these people and every nation out there that he is a God that saves. 
We'll see that here in just a moment. For the time being, I think this section shows us that God leads his people. God is the one who leads his people. His people's charge is to simply obey fully. When God leads, when God sets out, our task is to obey fully, to do whatever he has called us to do. And that means that our obedience must be immediate, dependent, and committed as well. Both individually and as a congregation, as a church. When God calls us to something, we move. When God moves, we move. Right? No delay, no debate, no negotiation. We move. Obedience must also be dependent, such that if God is absent, we fail. Do you think about your obedience in those terms? Or do you think about gutting it out in your own strength? About getting it done in your own power? If God doesn't show up, will you fail? If God doesn't show up in our ministries, if God doesn't show up in our church, will we fail? And finally, our obedience must be committed. Where despite the odds, despite what we can conceive in our human wisdom, we trust that God will do what he's promised to do. Is that hard for you? I know it's hard for me. No matter how many times I think back to where God was faithful in my life before, every new season and every new challenge seems like this is the one. This is the straw that's going to break the camel's back. This is the moment God is not going to be faithful. And then he does. And he is. And he always will be. We must learn to embrace God's leadership and obey him fully in all things. Because when we faithfully wait and when we fully obey, we can be sure that God is glorified. And that is the definition of a successful, faithful Christian life. Glorifying God in the way we obey him. And that's worth remembering. And so in chapter 4, God reminds his people. Now, I know that we recently covered this text on our 30th anniversary um, here earlier in the year. So I'm going to move through this text just a little bit quicker than we typically do. If you want more of an explanation of the text in a little more detail, check it out on our website. You can find it at faithbiblelincoln.org. Just find the sermons tab and find that message. But I'm going to move through this pretty quickly because we've covered it here pretty recently. And I just want to focus here on three audiences, three groups that this event is supposed to impact significantly. The crossing of the Jordan River is to impact Israel's current generation. It's to impact Israel's future generations. And it is to impact all nations, all people. First, Israel's current generation. Read with me verses 8 through 18. I just want us to see this here briefly. And the people of Israel did just as Joshua commanded. They took up 12 stones out of the midst of the Jordan according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, just as the Lord told Joshua. And they carried them over with them to the place where they lodged and laid them down there. And Joshua set up the 12 stones in the midst of the Jordan in a place where the feet of the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant had stood. And they are there to this day. For the priests bearing the ark stood in the midst of the Jordan until everything was finished that the Lord commanded Joshua to tell the people, according to all that Moses had commanded Joshua. So they set up this monument in the river. In verse 10, the people passed over in haste. And when all the people had finished passing over, the ark of the Lord and the priests passed over before the people. The sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh passed over, armed before the people of Israel as Moses had told them. 
about 40,000 ready for war passed over before the Lord for battle to the plains of Jericho. On that day, the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they stood in awe of him just as they had stood in awe of Moses all the days of his life. And the Lord said to Joshua, command the priests bearing the ark of the testimony to come up out of the Jordan. So Joshua commanded the priests, come up out of the Jordan. And when the priests bearing the ark of the covenant of the Lord came from the midst of the Jordan, and the soles of the priests of the feet were lifted up on dry ground, the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and overflowed all its banks as before. You see the impact that this crossing is supposed to have on the people alive at this moment? The author here takes pains to make sure that we see that God did precisely what he said he was going to do. In verse 10, the priest bearing the ark stood in the midst of the Jordan. That's exactly what God said was going to happen, right? He said, that's what I did, exactly what I told you I was going to do. Then verse 14, on that day, the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they stood in awe of him just as they had stood in awe of Moses all the days of his life. That's exactly what God had promised Joshua that was going to happen. That when we cross through the Jordan River, I'm going to begin to raise you up in the sight of the people. God fulfills his promises to Joshua. God fulfills his promises to Israel. God's faithfulness here is to be an encouragement to the people of his faithfulness to conquer the land. He looks at them and he says, I said I was going to do it and I did it. I've told you I'm going to conquer the promised land for you. Do you trust me for that? And they are called to remind each other of that moment. But in addition, there's also encouragement for Israel's future generations here. Look at this. Look at verse 1 of chapter 4. When all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Take twelve men from the people, from each tribe a man, and command him, saying, Take twelve stones from here out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly, and bring them over and lay them down at the place where you lodge tonight. Then Joshua called the twelve men from the people of Israel, whom he had appointed a man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, Pass on before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan, and take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel. Now listen to this. Verse 6, That this may be a sign among you. When your children ask in times to come, what do these stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord when it passed over to the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. He repeats almost the exact same thing again in or verse 19 through 23. And these stones, this memorial is to be a teaching tool and it's to be a reminder. You are to take it and you are to teach future generations of what I did here. They didn't see it, but they can see these stones. You remind them of what they mean. God's monument here is to be a reminder to future generations of what God did. Now, it's key to note here at the moment that this is not a reminder of their promise to claim. This isn't like a name it and claim it sort of thing. God God held up the waters of the Jordan here, so now future generations, you can trust that he's going to do that exact same thing here. You know, if, if Dan, the tribe on the east side, says, I want to travel over and I want to visit Judah, God, you want to just, you know, stop the Jordan River here for a moment? That's not what it's talking about. This isn't a promise to claim, but it is something that should inspire obedience in the people. This is what God did. And this event is never repeated in the history of Israel. Lastly, one final audience. Look at verse 24. 
so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty and that you may fear the Lord your God forever. This moment is supposed to be a call to faithfulness for the current generation. It's supposed to be a call to faithfulness for the future generation. And it's supposed to inspire awe in people all over the world. This expanding periscope saying, this should inspire you, but it should be told way beyond you to people all over the world. It should cause people all over the earth to realize that the hand of the Lord is mighty. And it should cause you to fear the Lord your God forever. I'm going to do wonders among you. This should cause everyone to wonder, to marvel at the God you serve. This is why God reminds his people, right? God prepares his people, God leads his people, and then he reminds them of what he's done. Which means that it's our task to celebrate that frequently. To look back on those moments and to celebrate what God has done for us. Do you take time to do this? There's at least three different groups that he has in mind here. This idea of telling each other, telling our posterity or our children, and telling the world. Tell me that doesn't sound familiar to the Christian life. We're called to tell each other of God's faithfulness. I would challenge you, as you walk out of this service today, who can you share an example of how God has been faithful to you in your life? Out in the foyer afterward, or maybe in your small group this week, how can you tell somebody about how God has been faithful to you? Coincidentally, this is also why we celebrate the ordinances, right? The two ordinances God has given his church, baptism and communion, to remember what Christ did for us and to proclaim that he's coming back again. We celebrate it together, declaring what God has done for us. Coincidentally, that's also the reason we have the purpose wall out here. To remember how God has been faithful to our church, to proclaim what he's calling us to do today, and to look forward to the future and say, God has always been faithful. He will never stop being faithful. And we're supposed to tell the next generation. Now, obviously, if you have children, if you have grandchildren, that includes them. We're called to tell our children of how God has been faithful. Parents, grandparents, do you tell your kids the stories of how God was at work in your life? How he saved you, how he changed you, how he prepared you? And even if you don't have children, which is many of us here today, we all have spiritual children in that sense. Paul writes to Titus and Timothy, he writes to the churches and he says, he refers to them as sons and daughters, he returns to them as family and he says, you need to be faithful, let me tell you about what God has done. All of us have a charge to tell someone about God's faithfulness to us. And then lastly, and maybe most significantly for us, the, the goal here is to tell the world. Are you so struck, are you so awed by the God you serve and by what he's done for you that you can't help but tell other people about it? I promise you that if you have a pair of shoes that you really love, you will tell somebody about it. You do. This is what we do. We're humans. We, we share these things. Why are we so hesitant to share Christ? Worship is the motivation for multiplication. You will share about Christ. You will share about how awesome our God is if you really believe he is. God's marvelous work should be celebrated by us today 
shared with future generations, and proclaimed to the nations. That's our charge. That's our call. Now, do you see how Joshua 3 and 4 functions as God's recipe for success, as this illustration of what success looks like in God's economy? Here, faced with insurmountable odds, a Jordan River and the city of Jericho, God acts for his people, and the people respond in obedience. We should marvel at that reality. As God prepares his people, but we faithfully wait as God leads his people, but we fully obey, and as God reminds his people, and we frequently celebrate those reminders. That has always been God's recipe for an impactful Christian life. Whether you're living in 21st century Lincoln, Nebraska, or whether you're living under the Nazi regime in the early 1900s, God prepares us for where he leads us, and then, once we're there, he calls us to remember what he's done. That's God's faithfulness in the lives of everyone that follows him. Regardless of your circumstances, as you find yourself saying, God, we know not what to do, but our eyes are on you. Let's pray. Father, that is frequently the theme of my life, and I expect I'm not alone in that. We know not what to do, but our eyes are on you. Help that to be true of us. Help us to not be impatient, not seeking to do things our own way, but following where you lead, trusting that you've prepared us, and celebrating the way you've been faithful to us in the past. I pray that we would be a church that owns that responsibility, that looks for you to act, and celebrates it when you do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.